The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the future of cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive industry and its supporting ecosystem and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you, I'm not even going to say if you want to run with the Game Changers. I'm going to say if you want to drive with the Game Changers, you are absolutely in the right place. Today's show is going to be a little bit different. Let me tell you how. First of all, the buzz is I love my car, but oh, you kid. Not sure where that came from, but it's an oldie but goodie. Recently, actually, April 12th this year, Edward Humes, H-U-M-E-S, in the Atlantic, slammed the primacy of the automobile in American life. What did he say? He said the automobile is absurd and worse. Let me read this to you. He said, considering the constant fatalities, rampant pollution, and exorbitant costs of ownership, there is no better word to characterize the car's dominance than insane. I think he admires the car. And here's another thing. He said the car is the star. Why? Because of its unrivaled staying power for an industrial age, pistons and brute force machine in an era that's so dominated by silicon and software. But he says the convenience of the car is just a subterfuge for its many, many evils. We have a panel of three automobile industry experts who are going to debate the key points in Edward Hume's article in The Atlantic. Uh Uh-huh. It's going to be a lively discussion, I promise you. You're familiar with all three gentlemen. Let me just tell you who they are. First of all, we have Larry Stoley back. He is the sponsor of this series, which is The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. We're welcoming back Joe Barkai, an independent automotive industry expert and consultant and analyst and all those good things. And Otto Shell, our good friend from GM. We wouldn't think of doing a show without Otto. He's on almost every week. And so we have three very interesting thought leaders who are going to debate these four topics. Number one, are cars a waste of money? Waster of money, meaning a poor investment. Okay. Are cars a waster of the environment? You know what that all means, including dependence on oil. Tagged along with that is are cars wasters of the climate pollution and climate crisis. And number four, perhaps most provocative, are cars wasters of lives. What are the statistics on the constant or not so constant fatalities caused by automobiles? So first up, let me welcome back Larry Stoley, Senior Global Director of Automotive Marketing at SAP. And Larry sent me an interesting quote from Robbins B. Stockel, S-T-O-E-C-K-E-L. If you're not familiar with him, he was the Connecticut Motor Vehicle Commissioner from 1917 to 1921. Why in the world would you be familiar with him? Probably everybody listening to the show was born way after that. But this is an interesting guy. He wrote an a article called Good Manners in Motoring 
hinted. Uh, hi, let me just read you one line. To be a good driver in terms of applied ethics is to be a person of good manners, truly an altruist, ready to see and appreciate the problems of others, to make proper allowance for them, and to exercise even a little more patience, care, and consideration that is actually called for by the letter of the law. Driving an automobile through water or mud so as to splash same on pedestrians is a common pastime with some motorists who have peculiar ideas of what constitutes a joke. Give proper warning. I'm loving this. Here's the quote Larry has selected. Automobiles are not ferocious. It is man who is to be feared. Larry Stoley, welcome. How are you? I am good and glad to be back. Uh, well, I'm glad you're back, too. And, Larry, I love the idea for the show. You were so provoked by this article in The Atlantic. When well, I, did you I read tend, it? Yeah, go ahead. I, I tend to react very um, very strongly to those things that challenge what I've done for all of my adult life. So, you know, it, it, they really strike to the bone. And when I read the article, you know, my immediate reaction was, you know, complete anger. And then I talked to my colleagues, Joe and, and Otto, and, you know, they kind of said, Larry, slow down a little bit, think about this, and let's think about, okay, true statements, but what's the reality here? So it was important for me to, to you know, to find that reality. And what I really did was went back to, to Robin Stockle. I mean, attorney, uh, Connecticut, Connecticut State Senator, Motor Vehicle mm-hmm. Commission, 1917 to 1921, way back yep. before there were many cars on the road. And he said what I believe. You know, cars aren't the problem. Man's the problem. And, you know, I believe that is as true then as it, uh, and it's true today, that, that cars really, uh, from, from, a, uh, from that perspective, the driver, the operator, the, the user is, is indeed the problem. It's interesting. There was a, a drive that Delphi did cross-country, fully autonomous vehicle, uh, 99% fully, fully autonomous, no hands-on by the driver. And one of the comments that I heard from those in the car was that, you know what? The autonomous vehicle is a very polite vehicle. Mm. Now, that didn't mean that people didn't get aggravated at you know, it obeying the laws and so on, but it was polite. It never did anything out of rage. It never, never did anything out of emotion. So, so I think, honestly spoken, you know, when it comes to a lot of the things that we see going on in automobiles, it's the driver, not the automobile, and that's where we need to focus. Very interesting, Larry. What do you think Stockel would say now if he could see the proliferation of cars and People not really caring. Well, we're past splashing mud on people, Larry, aren't we? We're, we have <laughs> classes so. classes in road rage. We're trying to teach people how to drive more cooperatively, more congenially, more relaxed, more astutely, more carefully, more vigilantly. And at the same time, we're putting computers in cars and saying to people, you don't need to do that anymore. Just sit there and enjoy the ride and tell it where to go and it'll all happen. Is that a little bit of a uh, – would, would Stockel be shocked? Absolutely I, I think he would be very, very shocked. I mean, I think, you know, at his time he was thinking that the only solution to all those problems was behavior, modifying behavior, getting people to realize, you know, what they were doing and why were they doing it and what the, uh, necess- the, the you know, the outcomes were for the, from their behavior. Today, you know, I think it's even worse. I mean, honestly spoken, you know, we blame the vehicle for many, many things, and we put many, many things in the vehicle to overcome and make up for driver shortcomings. I think he would be very, very shocked at that point. 
I think so. I think he'd also be shocked at what's happened to cars in terms of styles, in terms of expense. No doubt. In term, yeah, he would be saying, I don't know what, where he is, but he'd be rolling over somewhere saying, what? you got to be kidding me. Okay, Larry, great introduction to our topic. I'm glad you were so provoked uh, that we are really changing the format of the show today. And I think it's a good thing once in a while to shake things up. So, Larry, I'm going to introduce your second guest now. He hasn't been on radio with me in quite a while. It's Joe Barkai, an independent industry analyst and Joe has sent me a wonderful quote very interesting quote beyond the automotive topic certainly a uh, something we all need to realize it has something to do with Larry's quote as well Melvin Kranzberg by the way was a professor of history at Case Western Reserve University professor of history of technology at Georgia Tech uh, let's see he's known for his laws of technology the first of which states and this is what the quote is technology is neither good nor bad nor is it neutral I'm just going to stop there. Great quote. Joe Barkai, how have you been? I've been very well. Thank you, Bonnie. Good to be back. We're delighted to have you. So tell me, are you a big fan of Mr. Kranzberg's? Uh, the principles, absolutely. Uh, I think they are very kind of uh, eye-opening when it comes to understanding the role of technology uh, in society and the interaction between technology and society. And, um, you know, Larry's points are actually along the same lines. Uh, is it the technology? Is it society? Is it an interesting combination between the two? And I think that not only is it interesting to debate this, looking at where we are today, but looking at tomorrow, some of the points we were just discussing, if you think about ethical behavior or polite behavior of, of humans, which is what you know, previous generations argued, what about mm-hmm. autonomous cars? Are they going to be as polite and as ethical? Uh, and the politeness point is actually interesting. When the, during the early stages of um, autonomous driving, some, autonomous, some Google cars were stuck in four-way stops and never moved because every time the car sh- appeared, you know, stopped the stop um, line, especially in California, everybody was kind of inching their way into the intersection. The car was there for a long, long time and didn't, would not move. So it really highlights some of the considerations um, when it comes to the interaction between technology and, and society. Thank you very much, Joe. What do you think? Uh, let's see. Mr. Kranzberg lived from 1917. Well, that was just about the time that Mr. Stockel was the commissioner of motor vehicles in Connecticut. Interesting overlap there. He was born in 1917, and he lived until 1995. What do you think Kranzberg would say today with this push toward these supposedly more polite driverless cars with the electric cars. What do you think he would say? Would he say, wow, uh, an idea whose time has passed due? Would he say, no, no? What would he say? No, I, I think he would be very interested in how we try, again, to absorb old and new technology in the society. Because his point was really that technology development has a really strong impact on the environment, on social aspects, human consequences. And he, he was early on saying that some of those consequences go far beyond the immediate purpose of these technologies. So he actually foresaw this coming. Uh, And then he also questioned our ability to foresee those and to control their evolution. So he would say, I told you so. Uh, By (laughs) the way, Bonnie, an an interesting observation, uh, one of his other laws actually said that invention is the mother of necessity, despite what we typically say, despite Frank uh, Zappa's bend. Invention is the mother of necessity. What he meant by that is that every technical innovation seems to require additional technical advances in order to make it 
fully effective. Or we might say for today's conversation, make those technologies fully um, collaborative and immersive, uh, or immersible, I guess, in society. <laughs> uh, he would totally say, I told you so. Thank you, Joe. Very interesting. I was about to read the six laws of technology, and number two is exactly the one you mentioned, of course. Invention is a mother of necessity. I also like number three. Technology comes in packages, big and small. And number five, this may be relevant to Kranzberg's life. He said, all history is relevant, but the history of technology is the most relevant. Interesting guy. Joe, thanks for introducing me to Melvin Kranzberg. I'm going to go look up some more information about him, and a pleasure to have you back on with us, Joe Barakai. And now, let's thank you, and let's bring up our third panelist. It's Otto Shell, waiting patiently to be introduced. He is the global SAP business architect and SAP Center of Excellence lead at GM. And Otto has just broken the mold here. He's not quoting a person. He's not quoting a book or a song. He's quoting a movie, and this is very telling. The quote is from Divergent, the 2014 film. I have all kinds of information about it, but let me just read the quote. Those of you who are Divergent fans, and there were many of you, will remember this. Here's the quote. First jumper, Tris, welcome to Dauntless. Otto Shell, you have to tell me what this all means. Welcome back, Otto. How are you? I'm doing very well, and uh, I I was waiting patient, yeah, but I was already in a thousand other sessions. You know, I'm always flying out and do nice stuff. So what is this about? Divergent is a, is a, a movie series. It's talking about um, different skill sets of people, but in the middle of the entire story are people which are diverge, which completely mm-hmm. think different. They solve things different. And the reason uh, what happened to them due to the fact that they are diverge, they are not liked by the government. So government wants to pay and uh, so they are serious, and uh, the news one is running at the moment in the video, uh, in the movies, is elegant, which is also another kind of skill set those people have. So what does this mean? So you can, uh, there's an election of people by government, and Tris is c- collected in a group of uh, defenders. So she will be a soldier of this, this entire government. What the government does not really know that she thinks different, so that she acts different. The scene I'm taking out this is she's riding on a fast train uh, to her new camp. And during her ride on this fast train, and it's really a fast train, she's asked to jump out into a hole. And uh, at the hole, at the end is a net. So she jumps out, not knowing where she jumps, and she is handled by a net. So this means they wanted to see, is she really brave? Is she, has she the skill set of braveness? And those people which don't jump are out of the game and they will be killed. So at the end of the day, what does it say to us is, when you see the quote, there is a net where everybody falls in. And the net is about, when we talk about autonomous driving, this kind of thing, there is an infrastructure to build up. We talked last time about. So there are other people to care about you to make sure that everything is going into the way. Why divergent? We have to think completely different in this entire new world. If we go with the old thinking, yeah, we may be not killed, but we will be out as uh, as soon as possible. Hmm. And what do you think Divergent would say, or were they already using driverless cars? Did they have any kind of vehicles at all in that future society, Otto? Yeah, in this movies, they are much more advanced, yeah. 
So you can imagine, go back in the 17s when you when you had this uh, Starship Enterprise, what they were mm-hmm. talking about. Yeah, you remember Dr. Pille, who who took the complete assessment of a person with a, with a sensor. Yeah. So now we are 40 years later, and we start to think about this. Those people are already 20 years above with their vehicles. Thank you very so much, very Otto. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. It it is, and you know, I'm I'm interested in the the breadth of the quotes the three of you have provided we've got Stockel who lived very early on then we've got who we got we've got uh, Melvin Kranzberg who passed away in 1995 and then we're shooting way into the future of whatever kind of uh, they call it a dystopian and post-apocalyptic Chicago where everything has changed into the future so thank you to the three of you for sending such interesting quotes and now I think we all need a little bit of a beverage break so let's dial back around the table to Larry Stoley. Larry where are you calling from and what's in your cup or what are you dreaming about drinking later? I'm in my home office, glad to be here after spending last week at our big industry event, Sapphire in Orlando. And you know me, Bonnie, I'm a simple person. You know, my breakfast beverage is milk, and my uh, habit uh, cup is full of regular Folgers black coffee. And, you know, I, I realize that, uh, uh, you know, all the world talks about natural things, organic things, and, and I realize, you know what? I drink natural things. I drink coffee black, natural. I drink milk, not 2%, not skim, but whole, natural. So, you know, that's kind of my world. I appreciate that. Natural, would, could we say you're drinking holistic coffee if everything there you is go. so natural? Yes. There you, there nothing, you go. Nothing different, yes. Nothing different. I like that, Larry. Glad, glad you have consistency there. Joe Barkai, where are you calling from? Uh, you told me Boston, I think. And, well, is your weather like ours, Joe? It was rainy this morning. Then we got a burst of sunshine, and now it's looking like it's going to plew again. Uh, what's going on in Boston, and what are you drinking, Joe Barkai? Still raining here, which I'm happy to say I can use the water because uh, so it saves, you know, starting the spring early in the year. So, yeah, it's still raining here, Bonnie. Um, I want to go back to Larry's observation. I, I just, a, not a while, not long ago, I saw one of those kind of personality quizzes that, will, mm-hmm. that attempts to describe your personality based on the coffee that you drink. And, you know, I don't spend much time worrying about those things. I don't think they are, that probably is less, re, even less reliable than those that tell you your personality based on your pet. But, but Larry, maybe you want to look up your personality based on drinking pure organic black <laughs> coffee. Um, I, 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 I drink my coffee with sugar and milk. Not much, but absolutely. Um, so I already had my coffee for the day, so for the morning, so I'm now too kind of diet of, of water. But, you know, the, the statistic is I think that Americans drink a little over three cups of coffee a day. So I'm going to make it up and, uh, in the afternoon. I'll probably have an Ely uh, cappuccino. Oh, nice. What do you do? What do you put in your cappuccino? You just have it straight the way it's prepared. Do you put any any sugar in? Any doctoring? Anything, Joe? I'm, I usually don't put sugar because I like the you know the bold, strong taste of cappuccino or the coffee in I, general, but not not totally black in the way Larry has it. Yeah, I okay. think you're trying to tell me I'm caustic <laughs> or something like that. Um, <laughs> no, actually, no, Larry. The the the, the, uh, the personality test is actually very positive, so you should. Really ah, good. It. Okay. <laughs> okay, guys, and enough play. Otto Shell, you're somewhere in Germany. Tell us where and what are you drinking right now or what are you dreaming about after coffee time? You're probably way past coffee time, Otto. What's going on? So actually, I'm in Detroit. 
and I have a good coffee in my hand, black. Where I'm dreaming about is very simple, staying in my other hometown where I lived several years in Turin, having a really good Italian espresso with a yep. hot brioche and a and, and, and mm. nice morning. Uh, why I'm dreaming on Italian coffee, U.S. coffee is getting better, but to me, the coffee beans are really burnt. So if you mm. go here to a coffee shop, get a really good espresso, you don't taste the coffee. You just taste the burnt bean. So that's uh, what I'm really looking for, to get a really good espresso. They are learning, but they are not there yet. <laughs> I hope they're listening. I really do. As you all know, uh, well, actually, Otto and Larry know, Joe may remember, uh, they only let me have non-caffeinated beverages on radio show days, Joe. You know why. And all I'm drinking is cool, clear water in a cool, clear mug. And I'm looking at it. Hopefully, the rain will stop. It looks like it's coming back here. And I have a pink straw in celebration of the sunshine that was about an hour ago. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very happy to be here on the Future of Cars with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. We are debating. We are discussing. We are uh, hopefully not too much, but maybe disemboweling the position, the opinions of Edward Humes in his article in The Atlantic. And the article was The Automobile in American Life. Our question is, insane or is it really rational? We have a lot to talk about. We're talking with Larry Stoley today, Joe Barkai, Otto Shell. And we're going to pick apart the main points of how cars are wasters of money, of environment, of climate, and of lives and see what our three esteemed panelists think is really going on and if they agree or disagree in whole or in part with Mr. Hume. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. This is one conversation you definitely don't want to miss. Justin, out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. SAP is excited to be a co-innovator with the automotive industry as we help automotive and related companies digitally transform their entire industry and disrupt their existing business models. The Future of Cars with Game Changers brings you insights from the people in the driver's seat who are making this happen. We'll delve into industry challenges and solutions that support ecosystem industries, all to help you succeed in transforming your business and business networks for success in the new digital networked age. Tune in to the Business Channel to hear today's top technology and business strategy thought leaders share expert insights on how the automotive industry is shaping the future of change for all of us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to the future of cars with Game Changers. Indeed, the future of cars. I think the future is here already. We're talking today about the automobile in American life. Is it insane or is it rational, justifiable, smart? 
Choose your poison on that second part of that question. We're speaking with Larry Stoley, Joe Barkai, Auto Shell, three of our most esteemed automotive industry experts, and we're finding out if they agree or disagree with Edward Hume's position in the Atlantic article. Look it up, everyone. You'll find it online. Edward Hume's H-U-M-E-S, The Atlantic. It was published on April 12th this year, 2016, where he slammed the primacy of the automobile in American life as absurd and insane. Them's fighting words. So Larry Stoley's going to kick off our roundtable. We're doing a little bit differently this time. We're going to tackle the points of view of Mr. Humes. Larry, let's start out talking about the first point, which is cars, are they wasters of money, a poor investment? Do they waste capital? I'm just going to ask the question. You give us your two-minute POV. We'll go around the table to Joe and Otto, and then we'll keep going around, then I'll come to another question. Larry, talk. Absolutely. You know, until a few years ago, I never really thought about that position in terms of do they waste capital? Are they a good use of our capital? Do we get a good return on capital from an automobile? I mean, for me, they were just part of the part of my life. But then I was forced to 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 really look at that that statement and say, you know what? That's that's kind of true. I mean, I invest significant money in a vehicle. It sits in my driveway idle or my garage, idle most of the time. So, you know what? There, there's a whole lot of truth to that. But then I get to this thing I call, yeah, but. Um, it's not about my use of the vehicle. It's about my ownership of the vehicle. It's my mm. pride. It's my status. It says something about me. That is a return on my investment. Tangible or not, it's a return on my investment. The ability to do what I want to, when I want to, there's a return on my investment. So all of those things conspire to say, you know, if you look at just the base figures and utilization, probably a real waster of capital. But when I look at all the other things that, that the vehicle brings me, pride of ownership, my status in life, my freedom, my ability to go and do things I want to do, Oh, wait a minute. That starts tempering that whole equation rather significantly. So uh, while I understand, and just looking at pure raw numbers, one would draw the conclusion that vehicles do waste capital, I have to say that beyond that, they bring significant other things of real value to people. So uh, I'm a little defensive on that one. I get it. I understand. But you know, I see the other side as well. Thank you, Larry. Very interesting. The, the emotional content, the emotional impact. I agree. I buy cars because they make me feel good. I hardly drive, but I love my car. Oh, you kid. So there, and there I think go. our other panelists might have the same, and that's worth a lot. That That's uh, self-esteem, that's aspirations, all those good words that, that uh, demographic researchers always talk about, what motivates us, what makes us tick, how do we spend our money. Joe Barkai, weigh on on this, please. Well, I, you know, I understand your point of view, both Larry and, and, and Bonnie, but I think that the argument Humes is making is not about personal satisfaction or pride or image, but rather purely in terms of return on investment. And I have to agree with him. Um, automotive, passenger, uh, personal passenger cars are total waste for all the reasons that are listed uh, in the article. Uh, but it's only also fair to say that part of the waste is really the nature of the technology uh, because this technology brings convenience, brings mobility, it infuses um, businesses and, and manufacturing and so on. And, you know, we can draw a parallel. Think about 
uh, your you know home uh, air conditioning unit where I live we use it several days a year no more than that so if you look at the number of cooling days uh, in, in, uh, versus the investment in the AC system no it's not a, a useful investment the return is very limited however it is useful it's perhaps necessary for the elderly for the disabled and so on so there's some something to be said about it but there's an interesting observation here overall about the automotive technology and I'll state this in the, from the perspective of uh, Cranfield. If you think about the evolution of te- uh, automotive technology, for many, many years it drove uh, the development of suburbia. We had um, large cars, cheap energy, good highways. We drove the development of suburbia. Now the, the trend is reversing, and as we said earlier, we don't always foresee the challenges. So now pollution uh, congestion, fatalities, and all, all of those things lead us to think differently about mobility. So it's the first time, maybe in the history of technology, that the social side, the, the urban development, is really driving uh, and pushing back on automotive technology. So we're driving smaller cars, more fuel-efficient cars, in the future electric cars, and so on. So the trend is reversing. I, I find it to be very interesting. Thank you. Otto Shell. love to get your point of view on this. Please join us. Uh, unfortunately, I have to disagree with Larry. Yeah, he did not hear about this yesterday. In our first session we had on this series, we talked about uh, the unused car. Five percent of the uh, the car is really used per day, but we agreed uh, to disagree because he loves cars, and I'm the guy who wanted to sit in the back in a connected car. So, at the end, about his right. It's all about passion versus needed discussion. So, are they underutilized? Yes. But while they're not driving, we wash them, we love them, we show them. And I think this is all about the DNA, which will change with, with other generations, with new generations, uh, how cars will be uh, utilized different. So, that is sentence number one. And I really don't focus here only on, on young generation with shared economies. I mentioned this, or we mentioned this all in several other discussions. I look also to those people which are not able to drive at the moment because they maybe not having a driver license, they are handicapped. Those people will get into a car when it gets connected. So there's a huge way of where we can change the the underutilized asset. And by the way, we have much more things at our body which are underutilized when I see how much people spend for watches and other things. Yeah, the clock you can get everywhere, but I just want to show it. Yeah. The other thing is, um, um, on the other side, uh, going into what Joe said, automotive is always considered as the driver of uh, the way we do industrialization, how we change business models, how we go into reducing cost and sustainability, find new ways to, to production. So I think the, the automotive industry as such has done a lot in the last 100 plus years to, to show how industrialization can move. And when you see then how this is also impacting uh, prices of a car, the, the way of uh, what cars get now in, I think we are in the good way. Yeah. At the end of the day, Yes, when you spend money, yeah, and you lose it already with going out from from a dealership. But again, uh, there is a sense people want to be mobile. People want to show their assets, and mm-hmm. people still want to be proud in what they are sitting. 
I think they are not underutilized in this sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Larry, I'm going to circle back to you because you started this discussion on this particular point. You want to comment on Joe and Otto, please? Well, you know, honestly spoken, I think, I, you know, Otto said he disagreed. I don't think he disagreed at all. I think, uh, <laughs> I think he and I are, are very, very closely aligned. You know, uh, well, just it, to make sure if you have the right coffee and you're still awake. There you go. <laughs> you're testing me. See, that's what friends are for. But, but honestly, you know, when, when you really, really stop and think about it, underutilization, you know, you have to look at the car in terms of, okay, what does it do? I mean, the automobile, uh, in all of its virtues, the automobile itself, the, the industry that supports it, the industry that builds it and supplies you know, raw materials and components to it. Those things, and the transportation and so on and so forth, 3.5% of North America's gross domestic product is directly attributable to the automobile. It's 3% in the rest of the world. So you know what? Underutilized maybe, but delivering uh, significant value, both personal and perceived, uh, I think you'd be hard-pressed to say otherwise. There you go. Okay. Those of you who can't, can't, can't afford fancy shoes or great-looking clothes, just get a great-looking car, and there you are. Okay. it's the What did we say? The uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Value is in the eye of, I don't know, the person who put the payment on the car. Okay. Larry, let's go to our second point here. Are cars an insane waster of the environment? And included in that, we'll talk about fuel dependence. And why don't we bundle in the climate as well, environment slash climate. So, Larry, why don't you kick off this part of our our provocative discussion of Edward Hume's article in The Atlantic. Larry, talk to me. This is a very interesting. You've got to realize my background. I come from a background of uh, spending a bit of time racing cars and so on and so forth. And you know what? It's honestly true that an internal combustion in an engine is a notorious waster of energy. If you, if you think about it and you do the science, 80% of the um, output of burning fuel in an internal combustion engine, you know, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, goes up in friction and heat. So only 20% is available to really move the vehicle along. So you think about that equation, 80% loss, 20% value. Uh, One would be hard-pressed to make an argument otherwise. So absolutely it is uh, not one of the most efficient things in the world. However, However. uh, since we really started realizing what vehicles could and were doing to our environment, to our lives, and so on and so forth, the the automotive industry has done tremendous uh, things. They have made tremendous progress in cleaning up vehicles. I mean, if you look at the emissions of a vehicle today, uh, the automobile, the industry itself, has taken tremendous steps to, to do things to do two things. Number one, clean up the output of the vehicles themselves. They're very, very clean today. I mean, the emissions that we put into the air today are minuscule compared to what they were 30, 40 years ago. The other thing that's happening is vehicles are becoming very, very fuel conscious. They're squeezing more and more, even though it's wasteful, more and more miles out of a drop of gas. So, while all those things are true, vehicles have come a long way to not only clean up their act, but to leverage the efficiency they do have. 
Okay, good opening for our second point of debate. And by the way, Edward Humes is on Twitter. It's at Edward H-U-M-E-S. And I'm hoping we might get a reply from him, Larry and Otto and Joe, because I am tweeting a lot and he's starting to be included, not just by name, but by Twitter handle. So there you go. Everybody poke Edward and tell him we're talking about him. Hello, Edward Humes. Okay, let's go to Joe Barkai. What do you think? The cars, is it an insane waster? Let's put those words together. An insane waster of environment and impact on climate all bad joe i don't know about the insane part but yes it is it is polluting <laughs> uh, it's wasteful um it's technology that perhaps um had made tremendous progress since the, the turn of the previous century uh but um again in the spirit of how i look at the facts and what i conclude um this is not enough going forward uh, we've reached a point where we're polluting too much we're wasting space we're wasting energy we've got to think differently and boldly going forward and I think that one of the technologies that we often discuss in this context is electric vehicles. And the progress of electric vehicles is disappointingly slow, and I think it will continue to be so for a couple of decades for various reasons. But I think that if we move forward and we think about shared mobility, about electric vehicles, uh, about public, improving public transit, that I think is what we need to do. Uh, the progress we're making in internal combustion engines notwithstanding. Now, I know that the pushback immediately is, well, the carbon footprint, you know, manufacturing and operations of electric vehicles is not much better than internal combustion engines. And I think that these arguments are a little bit like the arguments that Hume is making. They are a bit one-sided. Uh, if you look at the energy consumption in, or the use of energy, uh, electric energy in countries that are coal-heavy, like um, China, India, Australia, South Africa, I think, then, indeed, the electric vehicles, the, the carbon footprint of those vehicles is as bad as internal combustion. So we're not winning much there. But if you look at countries like Germany, uh, Paraguay, Scandinavia, where uh, the cost and the, the pollution of uh, electric energy is much, much lower, then we, we can actually make a significant uh, improvement in availability of those technologies that pollute less, uh, shared models that help uh, reduce congestion and back to a point that both um, Otto and I made earlier, transportation for all of those that are currently un, you know, in, un, are unable to use transportation, elderly, blind, etc., etc. So I think that the way to increase the collaboration, as it were, and the utility of technology and society is by going in this direction and not try to squeeze more for internal combustion engines. Thank you very much. Otto Shell. love to get your point of view. Where are we in terms of cars' impact on the environment, the climate? Talk to me, please. Yeah. Um, don't forget where my quote is coming from, Diverge. And when I saw this uh, mm-hmm. and, and read it through, I, I took what happened in the last couple of years. So the reason why U.S. industry is up more or less is fracking. No? So they went with, mm-hmm. with some tricks to the to the uh, high oil prices, everybody started to buy cars. On the other side, we are producing windcraft in Europe and don't know what to do with the energy. So, uh, and why I'm saying this is that at the end of the day, whatever automotive did in the last years was to get to, to leaner uh, production sites to, refu- to, to reduce the, the, the way um, how gas and everything is consumed to come up with alternatives. But the, the question is, does the environment want this? Does the lobby want this? Yeah? Would we allow to do more 
electrics. Yeah. So and I have here some some really question observing the markets. The other thing I want to see will see is uh, we have to come as with these digital trends to the way how we work much closer together. We covered this in our sessions and will be surely covered in future sessions. Is a car alone, an autonomous car alone, does not make it. Yeah, you need to get the environments done. You need to get the the the, uh, the, the, the state set up. You need to get the cities set up. So, on the other side, uh, all industries at the moment in the move looking for for new markets. So we have to come together, and I'm pretty sure that at a certain point in time. Um, those people who allow this waste at the moment, and really that's the lobbies who want to stay with their money, they have to come back and say, okay, how do we get this in a quite sensible way? Again, to produce windcraft and then don't know what to do with this entire energy and then you sell it out for zero is also another way of waste yeah, because people follow trend without really a kind of idea or without a game plan behind. So I I think automotive has done a lot in the last couple of years to go away from that they are really wasters. I think they are improvers. Thank you very much. Larry, I'm going to circle back to you since you opened this topic. What do you think? Agree or disagree with what Mr. Barkay and Mr. Shell have added? I think they're both absolutely correct. And, you know, Bonnie, yesterday you and I talked uh, about this thing called the circular economy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in past years, at end of life, for example, the automobile was done. It was in a junkyard. Maybe some parts were salvaged. Maybe some rare earth materials and some of the components were salvaged and so on. But the whole notion of the circular economy takes us kind of in an interesting way. Once an electric vehicle, and, and let's be honest, I mean, that's that's where we're going. That's that's ultimately where we'll go. Sure, we'll, we'll move, you know, from that through fuel cells and so on and so forth. But the the next step is electric vehicles. Electric vehicle batteries at end of life can be transformed into things that provide value in emerging world countries, charging stations, if you will, for connected devices and so on. So all of a sudden we see these these tremendous wasters, these polluters and so on, now turning around and giving back to the environment. So. You know, I, I think this uh, the whole notion of circular economy takes us into a quite a mitigating type of thought process around our pollution. So I'm really pleased with that. Thank you, Larry. Yes, I mentioned to you I had seen a television program about the circular economy, and I was fascinated that they were, instead of putting things like electric car batteries that were no longer useful in the home of the electric car, if you will, uh, they were reclaiming them. Uh, a gentleman, I don't remember his name, but you can probably find it online, is is starting a company where he refurbishes somehow or regenerates these batteries, and they are being sold to countries that lack proper electricity, electric infrastructure, and the batteries are adequate to power charging stations for students, for their tablets, for their cell phones, for all kinds of uses. So there is a second life, if you will, of these batteries, and the goal is to make the economy circular, recycle, reuse, repurpose, and say, hey, there's still some life left in this battery. Somebody can benefit from that. And they're reselling these batteries for $100 to countries and communities that really need to have 
have this power source. So it was very, very exciting, and I'm, I'm glad you appreciated that, Larry. Let's move on to Joe Barkai. Joe, what do you think? Uh, you want to any final comments on that, or should we move on, gentlemen, to our third and final topic? Everybody ready to move on? Well, maybe, yep. maybe a quick comment, Bonnie. Uh, yes, since, please. Um, you guys kind of brought the uh, economy and supply chain conversa- topic to the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. one of the more common theories in, e- in economics is that uh, demand creates supply, which I think people intuitively understand that. But at the same time, there are those that argue that um, supply creates demand. What I mean by that, and it's pertains to both last topics we discussed mm. is that, you know, we, we worry about um, congestion and parking space and so on, and we hope that by using smaller cars, shared mobility, uh, people moving to public transit will free up the highways and free up uh, mm-hmm. parking spaces. So that's one scenario. But under the theory that supply creates demand, there's as equal a likelihood that actually these empty spaces will feel, be filled immediately, but more people interested in driving. So whereas now many of us try to maybe avoid driving because it's congested, because we don't want to look for parking, as space frees up, we'll get our, in our cars, hopefully non-polluting cars, and get on the road and, and fill that available supply of parking spaces. So we'll see how this reaches the, 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 some sort of equilibrium over the next decade or two. Thank you very much. And now let's move to our fourth topic. So we have time for our predictions. And the fourth topic is our cars, wasters of lives. And the question is, are vehicles responsible for untold carnage on our highways and streets? Larry, why don't you kick this off? Let's go two minutes apiece so we have a little bit of time left for predictions. Larry? Well, you, you know, my, my take is that cars don't do anything in and of themselves. They're entirely neutral. They're tools. Uh, for transportation, and it's really people who are responsible for the actions of that vehicle. In in 1972, 54,000, almost 55,000 people lost their lives on the highways and streets of the United States. Almost four people uh, died per 100 million miles driven. And you know what? How do we improve that? We improved it with a vehicle. Vehicles actually save lives today. Um, you know, this year, or in 2014, 33,000 people died on our highways, a net reduction of over 20,000 lives uh, being lost. In addition to that, the amount of miles driven is two and a half times more than we drove in, in 1972. So the deaths per 100 million miles driven has dropped from about 43 to hmm. just slightly over one. So on, in its purest form, if you look at a vehicle, the safety advances that have been engineered and designed into vehicles are actually saving lives. So I, I believe very strongly that, yes, 33,000 lives is way, way too many. One life is too many. But at the same time, the vehicles themselves are engineered to save lives, and they're indeed proving that they are capable of doing that. Thank you, Larry. I hear some optimism in there somewhere, and I appreciate that. And let's turn to Joe Barkai. Do you share Larry Stoley's optimism about cars saving lives? And what do you think Edward Humes would say in response to what Larry just put on the table, Joe? Yeah, no, excuse me. I, I agree, of course, with the facts and the statistics. I'm not sure that I agree with the observation that cars save lives. I mean, they, they, they reduce the likelihood of, of, of fatality uh, in situations that we shouldn't have been in in the first place. So 
So that's a bit of kind of um, arguing it um, not to my liking, I guess. Uh, indeed, cars are, are getting much more safer. There's no doubt about that, both active and passive safety. And we're saying that, yes, per driving miles, per miles driven, um, fatalities are lower. Uh, but we also, I think, improving a little bit in terms of educating drivers and going back to the opening comments about education and ethical behavior. I think that in most states, drunk driving fatalities are, are down. However, I think the most recent statistics show that smartphone-induced distraction is on the rise. So we're seeing more um, fatalities or more, more crashes resulting of that. So I think that overall, going back to the society side of, of the argument, we, <clears throat> we are still not controlling, as it were, the negative ramifications of transportation. But going back to the points we were making earlier, it's the cost we have to pay for mobility, for convenience, maybe for pride of ownership, and so on. But I think that going forward, we'll see this improving because cars on the kind of the path to autonomous driving are getting much, much better in terms of controlling their, its, their, their own behavior and maybe minimizing the, the impact of, of human errors. Thank you very much. Otto Schell, our person from GM on our panel so often. Otto, what's your observation? Are cars saving more, taking more? Is Edward Humes right that they are a waster of lives? Uh, you remember what I asked you, uh, how much people died with, uh, with horse driving and other things. Mm-hmm. I, think the, uh, I think we should see this also with a very, very positive view, yeah? At the end of the day, you cannot avoid humans' behavior. At the end of the day, you cannot really protect everything. So to my point of view, uh, they, they saved more than, than, than really happened. Yeah? So no doubt about this. Yeah? There will be huge, um, huge efforts to be taken in future. Certainly when we go into connected, how do we make sure that, that cars detect each other? How do we make sure that, uh, that the environments are getting set up? So there will be a challenge to get it done. But uh, let's assume everything is going perfect and that you are in a complete autonomous way. I'm pretty sure it will be 100% safe. Yeah. So let's really dream about this. Uh, when it will not be safe if somebody runs in between cars yeah, and uh, he's not detected in time. So let's see it positive to my point of view have done much more positive than than negative and when it's really negative when you read something in the press it's mostly about human behavior which we need to get under control Mm -hmm. Uh, i just while you were talking i looked up fatalities from horse-drawn carriages and i found an interesting article written by eric morris i'm not sure of the source but i downloaded it. it's called from horsepower to horsepower meaning horse power, two words, and they're talking about an 1898 delegates from across the globe gathered in New York City for the world's first international urban planning conference. One topic dominated the discussion. It was not housing, land use, economic development, or infrastructure. The delegates were driven to desperation by horse manure. By the late 1800s, the problem of horse pollution had reached unprecedented heights, and they're talking about the horse population in New York outnumbering city dwellers and horses being the main 
source of conveyance of uh, of transportation. Interesting. Should we just leave that one on the table? I think we shall. Larry, let me do, dial back to you, Larry. I'm going to ask you right now to look into that wonderful crystal ball. I know you polish off every time we get on the radio and take a look and tell me, let's look to 2020. It's not too far. It's not too near. Let's stick with that. What will change about um, maybe let's say what would change possibly about Edward Hume's opinion and take on the value of cars, the wastefulness of cars in the next three years or so. Larry, so you want to position our predictions that way? What will change by Edward Humes, or do you want to make it your own predictions? Larry? No, let's, let's take that. I, th- I think honestly spoken by 2020, we're, we're reading it, we're seeing it. We're going to, to begin to see the first relatively widespread use of fully autonomous vehicles. That will be the signal that the journey towards safety, towards uh, realizing a real value return on capital, to realizing shared transportation and its impact on uh, on the environment and so on, is actually beginning to begin. The journey will begin in 2020. And beyond 2020, we will see that journey pick up speed. We will see it accelerate. And... I don't know what the end game is when we will be fully autonomous. There will always be holdouts, and there will always be people who love to drive. Uh, so we're going to have to figure out how those two uh, different thought processes get along. But I think 2020 is the formal start date of the transition to a fully autonomous vehicle. Thank you very much, Larry. I'm glad you liked the year. Joe Barkai, I can give you a full 60 seconds for your prediction. What do you see coming ahead? Sure. So 2020, we'll see much progress, but mo- most of us will be disappointed um, in, in, in the progress in the sense that the overall impact on those elements that Humes is talking about is going to be not as significant. Because remember, the average age of the cars in the U.S. is about 11 and a half years, and it's growing older. So by 2020, it'll be maybe 12 years. That really means in the rate of sales and replacement of cars, it'll take maybe another 10 years until we have critical mass of those cars that are less polluting, they are autonomous, they are safer. So the progress will be consistent and in the right direction. Uh, It will be, though, slower than we think. But I agree with Larry, we'll see tremendous improvement in all the components that built together autonomous cars, so whether they're totally autonomous on the highways or maybe autonomous in special applications like campuses or, or, or transportation for the disabled and so on. We'll see progress there. Um, and another area that I'm still disappointed about our progress is in electric vehicles. 2020 is likely to see more, uh, but we're all waiting to see how the industry will shape up and if the industry can actually control costs and supply chains to the point that electric vehicles are the common mode of operation in 2020 and below, beyond rather. Thank you very much. Always articulate. Auto Shell saved you 60 seconds. Please go ahead. What's your prediction? So uh, I hope that at this time we will have more divergent people going over their borders of lobbyists, politicians, so that they really try to use this, uh, let's say, digital framework, the new technology enablement, the way how we want to see mobility take it as a chance to restructure us a little bit, take it as a chance to allow new technologies. Yeah, I'm pretty sure automotive could deliver already since several years, if not decades, much less consumption cars, but are they really allowed? Yeah, Who will lose the money, automotive or oil? Yeah, so this kind of discussions have to take place. 
if we want to go into autonomous, we need to restructure our cities, we need to restructure our environment. Do we need really traffic lights in the future? It's a question, right? And so I would be really delighted if we take this opportunity now, everybody talks about, everybody's aware, to start execution, and to start execution not in a risk avoidance point, but more in, in a positive attack mode to say, okay, what do we need to change to get there? If we don't do this, yeah, we will lose time, and we will lose really an opportunity because everybody's talking about digitalization, about autonomous, and I think it's a good momentum to bring people on the, on the table and to get it done. Thank you very much. I have a bonus question. One word answer from each of you, please. Larry, then Joe, then Otto. By 2020, will more millennials have cars than not? Larry, yes or no? Uh, no. Okay. Joe Barkai, millennials and cars in 2020, more or fewer? Um, more than not, but much, much less than today. Okay. Otto, Does quickly. Yep. Otto? Yeah. They, they will have all cars. Nobody knows if they own or if they share. Ah, there you go. We got that. Larry, there's a topic for another another show. The car in 2020, who will be the owners, who will be the sharers, and what models will be on the road in addition to self-driving. But I digress. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very, very happy to have a great discussion. And Edward Humes, we weren't picking on you. We are just using you as a very provocative topic for today's episode of The Future of Cars with Game Changers. Larry Stoley, Joe Barkai, Auto Shelf. Thank you. Thank you to Bill Newman for some good tweets. I saw some, Bill. And thank you to Justin, our engineer at the Business Channel. I'm Bonnie D. Graham as I said, and I plan to be, and here's my call to action, and I'll be back in an hour with a new episode of Digital Industries Changing the Game, and we're talking about telcos and big data today. Here's my call to action, and you know what it is. Fasten your seatbelt. Even if you're not in a car, fasten it. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Cars with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.